Well, Nick, you got a new YouTube three-part, no, four-part series up on our huge Tama project, our 800 acres of CRP grass and forbs that we planted. And 800 acres is a lot more when your planter is 10 feet wide. That is true. That is true. And uh, we should definitely do a plug for our planters right now, by the way. Uh, We do have some that are for sale that uh, are the perfect tool for putting down your prairie plot, especially if you've got a large one, especially if you have 800 acres worth of prairie that you want to put down. Yeah. Perfect tool for that. But but uh, anyways, I wanted to say this. I wanted to call up the Nick's YouTube series because first of all, videos, very well done. I just had all kinds of people visiting my house over the last week, friends, family, showed them the YouTube channel and they were all very impressed by Nick's work there. I'm blushing, man. Yeah, I'm embarrassed. Good thing you can't see that on a podcast, <laughs> but he is blushing. But uh, no, he did a, He does a phenomenal job with the videos. But in one of the videos, or in this series, the the intro is the same for each one. He talks, he starts throwing all these numbers out there. He throws in uh, numbers of, of acres we plant, numbers of people planting, uh, numbers of bags of seed opened, all this. And I gave him a little bit of a critique. I said, Nick, you should have put in there number of podcast episodes listened to (laughs) because we spent a lot of hours in the tractor and uh i had just one of those podcasts i had listened to was giving like uh you know an update on what's going on in the the wildlife world and and uh the natural world i guess you could say and it talked about the this new problem that's been identified and there's actually i believe if i remember correctly some legislation that has been proposed to address this problem and the problem is ugly fish don't get the love that pretty fish get they from a conservation standpoint that is true because they're ugly right people <laughs> don't people don't care about them as much and uh if you have a full understanding of how uh, ecosystems work, even the ugly fish play an important role and they need to be conserved as well. So when they start facing problems, they can kind of go unnoticed because, you know, they're not they're, they're not the sexy ones. Right. Well, today's conversation is really going to kind of be about that. We're talking about a species and and really we could probably talk about a few species here that is sort of flown under the radar from a conservation standpoint in an area that has changed drastically and really if we group this in with with you know the general biome i guess you could say of prairie here in north america has changed almost silently for the past 150 years, maybe we could even say 200 years, as settlers have moved across our continent and replaced it with agriculture, with housing, with roads, all sorts of things, right? And we've modified this landscape and we've seen some of these species that maybe aren't quite as sexy as elk or deer or, or bison, right? Some of these species that are a little bit harder to see, and you wouldn't really know unless you were looking for them, have really taken a hit. And thank goodness for the North American Grouse Partnership for being the ones to take notice and sound the alarm. 
And today we are very fortunate to have Mr. Ted Cook with us from the North American Grouse Partnership to tell us a little bit about this alarm that has been sounded. Ted, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's just kind of, uh, you know, paint a picture here for our listeners. So this is a Skype conversation and uh, Ted is located in Idaho. Garden Valley, Idaho, just an hour north of Boise. Yeah. Very good. Very good. So uh, north of Boise there, you are, you're, you're probably pretty close to the mountains there, right? Oh, yeah, we're in a little mountain valley town here. It's a beautiful spot. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And uh, from a prairie standpoint, what what part of uh, prairie ecosystem do you live closest to? Like how, what type of prairie would you classify? Yeah, so great question. So sagebrush ecosystem. And, and so, in fact, the North American Grouse Partnership, we include all 12 North American grouse species, but we actually focus on the four prairie grouse species because mm. they are most at risk mm. and the four prairie grouse species are <clears throat> lesser prairie chickens which we're going to talk about today mm -hmm. uh, and then also greater prairie chickens sharp-tailed grouse and sage grouse we count as a prairie chicken or as a prairie grouse rather uh, and i'm probably within 30 miles of uh, sage grouse habitat in my home here in idaho okay wow very cool so and you might be thinking, oh, wait, mountains, prairie. Uh, there, there can be some really interesting uh, bleed over with that. And and grouse can be found in both places. Grouse are a, really a fascinating critter that I haven't studied much myself. I've been paying more attention to them in the, over the past few years. Uh, here in Iowa, if you're tuning in, we do have some grouse that uh, inhabit the northeastern part of the state. And of course, you may your eyes may have perked up and you know as you start thinking back to your third grade uh uh curriculum where you learned about prairies and you started singing like some of the old uh prairie songs and and uh, maybe you took a field trip to a prairie plot or something like that and uh when he said prairie chicken you're like oh i remember those i used to see those when i played oregon trail when i was a kid on the computer or something <laughs> like that right it's it's one of those it's one of those well-known uh, I guess you could say relics of of uh, a forgotten world in a lot of part, a lot of ways, right? We we most of us have probably heard that name prairie chickens. We used to have those in great abundance here in Iowa, and other than maybe some very limited and very uh, intentional uh, repopulation efforts. I'm not sure that we really have a population of prairie chickens to speak of any longer here in Iowa. So uh, we do get a piece of the grouse pie, I guess you could say here in Iowa, but when you go out West, things get a lot more diverse as far as uh, the grouse uh, populations go. In fact, uh, so you may know that, uh, and if you've listened to the podcast long enough, we talked about this with our good friend, Paul Adama. Uh, I did a bear hunt out in Montana, and one of the coolest things that happened on that bear hunt, we were sitting there with the binoculars for hours, and uh, all of a sudden some grouse started doing some uh, courting dances with uh, the ladies and buzzing right over our heads. 
that sounded like a jet airplane going right past us and about scared my uh, hunting partner to death. He thought we were about to be attacked by something. Wow. But a true mating call. Right. Wow. Yes. It was very cool. So grouse all over the map here in North America. And uh, it's really cool to even have this thing to share with somebody who's a great deal away and uh, in, a, in a landscape that looks quite different than our own here. Yeah, and, and you know that that captures so much so well. I, uh, you know, Iowa, of course, is one of the most uh, intensely developed uh, prairie states. Mm-hmm. Um, not much native habitat left there. And then, as you say, as you come west, primarily due to less rainfall, there's uh, less interest in or opportunity for breaking ground for ag, right? And so, more remains as rangeland. And so, for those native grouse species that occur or occurred there, there's there's still an opportunity for them to hang on. So yeah, I, in Iowa, I don't know if you still have greater prairie chickens or sharp tails left in many places, if, if any, I, I don't know that, but but it, it's probably one of the states where you'd be least likely to find them, right? Right. Uh, but then as you move west, you have more greater prairie chickens and sharp tails. Uh, and then in the southwestern Great Plains, you find lesser prairie chickens. And of course, in the uh, in the intermountain western Great Basin is where you find the sage grass, right? And uh, yeah. it's wild country, it's wild habitat. And I uh, you know, you said it well earlier, but, um, but the, the way I think about lesser prairie chickens is, you know, when settlers came across the southwestern Great Plains and Native Americans lived there and waded through the sea of grass and fed themselves on lesser prairie chickens. Yes. They never could have imagined the day when all that would be left is postage stamp remnants of prairie habitat and an endangered species. Mm, yeah. But that's what we have. And, and it's due to habitat loss, uh, to all those reasons, you know, ag conversion, uh, as well as subdivisions and roads and power lines and now now wind generation sites and uh, oil and gas development. The one I mentioned, the four prairie grouse species, the one thing that really defines a prairie grouse in my mind is its aversion to tall structures. Mm. And so be it a lesser or greater prairie chicken, a sharp tail or a sage grouse, none of them want tall things nearby. Trees push them out, power lines push them out, wind towers push them out. Um, that's why fire is such an important element for all prairie chicken habitat, uh, or all prairie grouse habitat. Um, uh, although it can be problematic, too, for sage grouses, I think we, we know, but uh, maybe that's another conversation. But uh, sure. but anyway, keeping prairies, uh, prairies is, is the challenge here. And for lesser prairie chickens, 95% of the habitat's privately owned. And so really, we're reaching out to private landowners, and fortunately... There's a whole bunch of private landowners that care a whole bunch about protecting native southwestern Great Plains prairies and the wildlife that lives there, including lesser prairie chickens. So that's what the Grouse Partnership is working towards. Right. That's a huge thing we've been we've been kind of confronted with as we've done just initiatives and, and work uh, towards changing mindsets on, on prairie. And a lot of people kind of expect a big organization or the government or someone else to come in and kind of save a species Mm. but that's just the wrong way to look at it it's got to be everyone just doing a little bit you know some spearheaded people who are really just taking the drive but you really need everyone hey how can i help whether whether they're giving a little money or just honestly just being more conscious of things when they're building their house site or when they're putting in structures just being aware of things and and being willing to maybe make smaller sacrifices to uh, uh, for things around it, and and so like you were saying, the pe- the people, a lot of ninety five percent, I believe you said of the, the land that is still habitat is privately owned, and that's 
Um, it's a lot of how it is with C, you know, CRP is privately yeah. owned here yeah. in Iowa, but the, um, it offers a lot of habitat for that is left for the pheasants and some others. Yeah. Yeah. That's well said. Yeah. You, you, a lot of people want something to be done and, uh, you know, of course, what are we, the way we're trained to see that is, well, what's the, you know, what's the government going to do to fix this problem? Uh, remember that government really only has control and access that voters are comfortable with, I should say, to uh, the land that is publicly owned. And uh, in a state like Iowa, <laughs> that's very, very little. So yeah. we got to have we got to have the help of, of private landowners when it comes to conservation. And 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 really, you know, you, you look at. We can get down a whole rabbit hole here, but something that I'm very passionate about outside of conservation, but it, it meshes very well. And I know Nick is as well. And our founder, Carol, is the importance of small farms within this, because when you talk about the influence of private land owners on conservation. When we go to this huge industrialized farming uh, way of managing the land, well, you're talking, you got, you know, one person that has control over so much habitat. And if that person is great with conservation, is on board with it, fantastic. That's a huge advantage, right? But if they're not, now you're talking a large piece of the pie, so to speak, that uh, you you can't have any positive influence over. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot that goes into uh, the private side of land ownership. And uh, in reading your latest, which I want to get into this, and we need to more thoroughly introduce you, Ted, but it's just so easy to, <laughs> to get running yeah. in this conversation. It's a fun conversation. But um, uh in your article that you recently uh, published, uh, the going, going, almost gone and discussing the lesser prairie chickens in the Great Plains, uh, you, you give a, a, a round of applause to those private, those private landowners who have stepped up and been willing to uh, help out. And, and you even gave them to uh, the credit to the extent of saying, this is the only reason we still have them is because private landowners were willing to do so. So if you're listening in, you're like, uh, I don't know how much influence I have. Well, if you're a private landowner, you have a lot of influence and possibly the most important influence in the whole, the whole, uh, conversation on conservation. Wow. That could be nice. a little hashtag there, Nick. You can put that on your next Instagram post, <laughs> but let's, let's thoroughly introduce, uh, uh, or fully introduce, Ted here. So Ted, as I said, I believe you're the president. Is that correct? Executive uh, director. Executive yeah. director. Okay. Executive director of the North American Grouse Partnership. Now, is that a role that you've held for quite some time or or is this something that you've recently uh, stepped into? Yeah. So I've been here for maybe, I guess, hard to believe, but almost three years now. Okay. Uh, before that, I spent 30 years working as an endangered species biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Very cool. And for the last third, one third of my career, I worked with either sage grouse or lesser prairie chickens. And sure. when I was looking to retire, uh, North Bank Grouse Partnership was undergoing a leadership change. They asked if I wanted to apply for the executive director position. 
I said, no, and here I am. <laughs> but so what, because, and you, you kind of hinted at this earlier, I mean, yeah, you know, if not uh, us, then who, if not now, when, right? Yeah. And so I realized as I was stepping out of the you know, arena as a government official trying to conserve uh, ecosystems and species, um, you know, uh, lesser prairie chickens are actually beautiful. You know, you mentioned that the ugly species, that they're beautiful, but to your point, they're just they're not charismatic megafauna right and therefore they're yep. loved less which is, i think was your point i totally yep, agree exactly and i realized beautiful that birds, everyone. Out, I'm like man <laughs> if i don't do this you know who's going to step in and so so i have and uh, and i'm super excited to be here and glad that i've stepped in because if nothing else and i experienced this many times in my career but uh perhaps never uh, more richly as i'm experiencing now the the love that so many of these you know third generation private landowners have for their land mm -hmm. and for prairie ecosystems and for prairie grouse. And uh, they are, and, and so we've assembled this group, uh, the Lesser Prairie Chicken Landowner Alliance, across the five lesser prairie chicken states. So that's Western Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Eastern New Mexico, and Colorado. Uh, and they're, they tell me regularly how grateful they are to be able to talk to like minded landowners from these other states and put their shoulders behind the need to conserve uh, prairie ecosystems in the southwestern Great Plains. And uh, they're beautiful souls doing beautiful work and, and you know, making a living, right? They're, they're primarily the ranchers. They need to make money growing cows. And so they really do need programs like CRP to help support them uh, growing cows and prairie chickens. They want both. Mm. They want to grow cows and they want to grow chickens. And so that's, that's we're great. trying to make that work. Yeah, yeah that fits well with uh, a phrase Nicholas and I know well farm the best, conserve the rest, which I believe NRCS and Pheasants Forever have really used that phraseology quite a bit, but it fits in well with that. You know, how can we yeah. maximize the landscape for both, where both things are benefiting? Yeah. And I remember, yeah. sorry. sorry. Oh, I remember dad and I having a conversation about it and it was upsetting for me for a while that our industry was propped up on government spending, but he he sat me down and he said, it's not government spending. It's people's desire to have clean water, fresh air, and uh, conserve the species and the plant life that we, we've had. Um, and and people are willing to spend their tax money on, on those things. And, and yep. that was, um, yeah, that was a big, big part of helping me kind of dive into this, the, the whole conservation game. So yeah. let me just say, I, we, we had a little bit of a conversation before we actually got started. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we're separated at birth because we <laughs> exactly the same way. And, I, and here's the way I say that. And, and the landowners we're working with, um, these private landowners, these ranchers provide many values to society. They grow beef. They provide clean water, clean air, healthy soils, healthy vegetation, wildlife habitat but really right now the only thing they can monetize commercially is beef yeah mm. but they yep. still produce all these other values that americans want to buy yeah, yeah that's true and so you said it perfectly it's not a government subsidy uh, it's not the government doing a favor to these landowners it's these landowners doing a favor to the american public yep. by being willing to sell all of these products and all of these values at once, only yeah. only one of which they can get paid for commercially. Yeah. The rest, we've got these government programs so that Americans can compensate these landowners for giving us those wonderful things. 
That is yeah. totally really well said. I might I might steal some of that later. Yeah, that's gonna, that's <laughs> yeah. gonna go on yeah. a little side clip for uh, <laughs> yeah. YouTube or something maybe. But no, that's uh, that that's very well stated. Very well stated. Well, someone may be listening in and they may maybe saying, okay, you guys are a little bit all over the place right now. You're talking about these grouse species. You're talking about, I think I understand that they're not doing so well. But I thought, you know, with Ted's background, and Ted, I, I, I cheated a little bit. I, I found some information on you before you, uh, I knew you'd been a, an endangered species biologist for quite some time. So I thought this would be a good science conversation uh, to have here, give a little bit of a education to our listeners on some key points. But um, you may be listening to me saying, okay, so so they, they aren't doing well, why? And Ted's talked about habitat loss a little bit. We're going to dive into that, you know, definitely more here. But um, when you're talking about a species that isn't doing well within its ecosystem, you really need to understand a couple of key things. And uh, my background is being a science teacher. So I always got to take people back to the vocab to some extent, right? The keywords that help you understand the whole picture. So you are my worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you can't understand. You can't understand it very well. If you, I'm not going to say it all, but very well, if you can't speak the language. Right. And so uh, niche is this idea. Now there's people out there be like niche. He doesn't even know how to say it. Right. What about niche? If you go back to the, Bob St. Pierre episode, you'll learn that there's the right way to say it and there's the annoying way to say it. Both <laughs> both ways are appropriate. Niche is annoying. But uh, the niche of the organism, a specific role that it's playing within its ecosystem is defined by all sorts of different things, right? What it eats, where it lives, what time of day does it eat, when is its breeding season, how many, how many offspring does it have per clutch, that, all that stuff, right? That goes into deciding a an organism's very, very specific role within its ecosystem. It's called niche partitioning, right? And you have uh, all the other organisms, the native organisms that live there around it, not just other animals, but also plants, fungi, bacteria, you name it, right? Each one playing its role within the ecosystem. Now, when some a monkey wrench that's a big enough monkey wrench gets thrown into that ecosystem. All those little specific things that fit that organism, that, that makes that organism belong to its ecosystem can become threatened, I guess you could say, or even damaged. And when it happens long enough or big enough, it's a really big problem. Like uh, right now, kind of in your neck of the woods, I just heard about uh, some of the trout down in the Gila uh, national forest uh, that are being basically pulled out of um, the river running through that forest. I don't remember the name of it, but it's a very, very specific species, like a subspecies of trout that live only there. You know, well, there's a wildfire that's been going through there and they're anticipating huge runoff of all this ash from the fires that are going to greatly diminish the water quality. Mm. And that kind of a change could make that species go extinct. So you could have a big event, but more likely it's going to be a long-standing change. And in the case here for our prairie chickens, a change that gradually gets worse as that time goes. And uh, as a result, you have a threatened population. And so I, I got a list of things here that can fit into that. Habitat loss, invasive species that get put in and compete for that niche, 
um, disease outbreak. We see that going on with our waterfowl species right now. Huge avian flu outbreak. Uh, migration disturbance or fragmentation. That's There's been a lot of study done on that recently out in the West, especially with mule deer. I believe a little bit with pronghorn antelope. Uh, just figuring out how, whoa, when we slap an interstate down on the landscape, that makes for a really hard barrier for all these animals to maybe travel to wintering uh, uh, grounds further south where they do a lot of their breeding. And uh, how does that affect the gene pool then? And then of course, when you affect the gene pool, how does that affect the overall population? You know, we're, we're finding some information on that. Even over hunting, uh, not so much anymore. Really not at all anymore, thank goodness, uh, for uh, uh, the North American model of conservation that really has kept hunting, uh, you know, destroyed market hunting, which is a very good thing. And actually a cool little thing to brag on here. Uh, we are, in, in fact, I'm wearing an Oskaloosa shirt right now. We are very close to the hometown for uh, John F. Lacey, the guy who uh, authored and, and pushed through the Lacey Act that effectively ended market hunting here in North America. Yeah. And then the one that we were just talking about before we started the biggest one the kind of the the monster in the the closet the thing you can't get away from right now climate change right we see all kinds of critters especially megafauna that once were here in north america uh, that aren't anymore uh, things like woolly mammoths or saber-toothed cats or whatever that uh, have fallen prey to climate change we're kind of seeing that happen in the background uh, right now with a lot of other species, uh, maybe even our own, right, that can change our niche. And then if we change that niche enough, we have threatened populations. So that's going to, I'm going to use that long monologue <laughs> that I just had there to vault us into the next part here where Ted's going to tell us about his article, Going, Going, Almost Gone, the Lesser Prairie Chickens in the Great Plains. So Ted, could you give us a quick history of what the lesser prairie chicken, what it, you know, what was its history there in the Great Plains? And then maybe take us, you know, wind the, the clock forward to today, kind of describing the habitat and the current population situation within that. Yeah, that sounds great. And, and I might even uh, go back another big step or two in time, just real quick to talk about first the heath hen. Hmm. Uh, the heath hen was the eastern prairie chicken. Okay. And it was hunted to extinction by settlers 200 years ago. Wow. Uh, yeah. And uh, it was just Never like our. Yeah. Yeah. And very interesting. I actually got to hold one at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. once. Cool. Incredibly cool. I, I hold a study skin. A, right. Yep, yep. A long dead one. Um, yep. And actually, the last place that the heath hen occurred was in the. Uh, coastal plains uh, habitat there on Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And so uh, habitat loss is a part, but really over-harvesting for commercial purposes. And so fun to hear you mention uh, Lacey and the Lacey Act taking care of that for us, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. yep. And then next we have the Atwater's Prairie Chicken in coastal Texas, the coastal plains habitat. And that, you know, is a victim of, like most species today now, it's not hunting, it's habitat loss. I was a victim of habitat loss. And I just mentioned that briefly because it's an example of once you lose a prairie grouse from the landscape, it's extremely difficult to bring it back. 
So we have Atwater's prairie chickens breeding in captivity, which is great. Okay. But our ability to reintroduce prairie grouse is difficult because they they need such a large population size to function socially. So they in the springtime the males go to areas called leks, mm-hmm. the lek, L-E-K, to display. And there'll be say twenty males on a lek and they all dance and they kind of face off and fight each other. And then the females come in and say, Okay, I like you, I'll go I'll go with you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then these males, not only do you need 20 to a le- per lek, but you need multiple leks, and the males move upon multiple leks, and the females do, and then they breed, and then they go out a couple miles from there to lay eggs and such. Well, you, it's hard to muster enough grouse to just plop them on the landscape, and they're all naive and don't know how to avoid predators because they were born in captivity. Right. And have enough of them survive long enough to restore a population. And that's what we're learning with Atwater's prairie chickens. And we've got other, we've learned it elsewhere too. So prairie grouse are very hard to restore, but lesser prairie chickens, uh, you know, once abundant, really declined during the Dust Bowl era. Uh, and it was in the Southwestern uh, Great Plains that the Dust Bowl really manifested most significantly. Yeah. And, you know, dust liberated all and, you know, fell as far east as Washington, DC, which led to a lot of the USDA conservation programs we have today, like CRP. Mm-hmm. Um, and then lesser prairie chickens recovered from that, and there were, you know, 1.0 hundreds of thousands, probably millions of birds, really, at one point. Um, but we're down recently to about 30,000 birds. Uh, we had a, it, it, the counts actually in the mid-20-teens was down to, in, I don't know, 18,000 birds uh, mm-hmm. due to an extreme drought. Uh, it may not have been that few birds. When, when drought is that extreme, they may not even just show up to the lake to breed, therefore they don't get counted. Anyway, uh, better weather, more birds counted. But really, the overall trend over over decades is that grouse, uh, lesser prairie chickens are down ninety percent. When you say down ninety percent, since when? Do you oh, like? since the middle of last century. Okay. Okay. And it's very difficult, you know. I mean, records weren't great back then, and so there can be some debate. But there can be no there can be no debating the fact that lesser prairie chickens are way down, and that they're going they continue to lose habitat. And therefore go down. There's been some recent work to enhance habitat, which is good, and you know some recent good uh, weather years, which has kept numbers, you know, upwards of thirty thousand birds, which again is you know ninety percent lower, but still, you know, not zero. That's good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, so, but uh, so, so, long so do you feel do you feel habitat loss is the is the number one far and away cause? Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which is poised to list lesser prairie chickens under the Endangered Species Act any day now, uh, says habitat loss and fragmentation is the, the greatest threat. And it's true. I So, you know, lesser prairie chickens, you know, they used to be common. They used to be hunted. They used to be popular uh, amongst hunters, uh, you know, decades ago. Sure. But uh, two decades ago or more, uh, hunting for lesser prairie chicken uh, was stopped because of concerns about declining populations. But even back then, we knew it wasn't hunting. We knew it was habitat loss. And sure enough, even though there hasn't been hunting for lesser prairie chickens for a couple of decades, they continue to decline to the point where they're now going to be listed under the Endangered Species Act. And it's because of habitat loss. So what does that do? They're listed on the list. And, and what changes? For well, and so now they uh, there's the opportunity to protect the species through regulation. But the uh, likelihood of that happening in this case, in my experience, is very low. And primarily, it relates back to what we mentioned. Uh, 95% of the habitat for lesser prairie chickens is on private land. Mm. 
And, and so you take a species like the spotted owl from many years ago. I think we're familiar with that. Spotted owls, you could identify a nesting pair's territory. You could identify their nest tree. And timber companies would go cut down the nest tree. And environmentalists would take them to court saying that they took an endangered species. And the judge would agree with that. Because you can kind of, it's pretty clear, right? Lesser prairie chickens isn't the case. You know, you have rangeland that has lesser prairie chicken habitat. You overgraze that. There's just going to be fewer and fewer chickens over time until there's no more chickens, but you're never going to have a dead body or a, you know, a, a nest sure, <laughs> you know, that yeah. isn't in a tree. Right. And so, and so the likelihood of regulating or prosecuting is extremely low. And, and plus the fish on the service really, uh, that's, that's always a tool of last resort. And then finally, we have lots of good programs to incentivize and help private landowners provide chicken habitat. As we mentioned, these farm bill programs, for example. Mm-hmm. And so the regulatory part, and, and so I, Nick, I guess the other thing that the ESA listing does is it helps focus attention, like this conversation we're having right now, yeah. and it helps focus funding and money. So where you have an endangered species or threatened species, um, it can come as a higher priority on uh, the list of spending for government agencies, including the USDA agencies. Mm-hmm. So that's another, that's an advantage for yeah. having them listed. That's great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So habitat loss being number one cause, and I'm glad you uh, mentioned that about about hunting in there, you know, that I would imagine most people probably would jump to that just because they, of what you were saying earlier, you know, somebody's a settler moving across the prairie and, uh, or even during the Dust Bowl when, uh, you know, yes, habitat was being lost, but people were hungry too. You know, yeah. these times of where we treated the land as a grocery store more often than we do now, uh, would that have wiped them out? But, but uh, the, the facts show that, uh, and, and maybe that was a bigger role back during the days of market hunting. We know that certainly uh, there's, there's other well-documented examples of, of different species here on our, on our landscape that habitat loss is probably more of their problem today. But at one point, yeah, the overhunting could have been, could have been the real driver for the population uh, problems. You know, think of uh, the passenger pigeon. You know, yeah. just uh, people never thought we'd run out of them. And so they killed them in such excess that that even uh, I think they were done around uh, early 19 teens. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Lacey Act didn't come out till 1900. So uh, that was that would be an example of that. But for for prairie chickens, they still they're still around today. And the real threat they're facing here is the habitat loss. And so um that kind of leads us to our next question. Okay, we've identified the problem. I think you were already starting to talk about it there a little bit when you, you were talking about funding and so forth. How do we right the ship? How can we save these important birds? I'm gonna, I mean, I want to actually, I want to change the question. Same question, but I want to change it just a little bit, make it a little more pointed to Ted and uh, Fine. hope this is okay. But no, if, <laughs> if you, if you, if we said, hey, right now we're going to give you a hundred million dollars to pour out on the the lesser prairie chicken where where would you spend it where where can where can mm. money be moved to make change so great great question so um i'm going to start by saying and this is a very hopeful part of this story um today the greatest stronghold for lesser prairie chicken that remains is a bunch of 30 year old crp land in western kansas Wow. The economic conditions were li- right. 
a whole bunch of landowners contiguous to each other signed up. And the program at that time required planting with native seed. Mm-hmm. And because of that today, we have lesser prairie chickens still. So wow. we've done it once under CRP. We can do it again. Now, CRP is not the only answer or the final answer, but but we, we've, we've done it once. Let's make sure we incorporate that. So $100 million to spend when, where, how. So, uh, you know, these farm bill conservation programs are great. Uh, however, a lot of times the way they happen, they're kind of generic. They may not require native seed. They may open a program, sign up countywide, and then wait for landowners to come in the door. And because of that, they we often laugh, lack a strategic, focused, and sufficient application of these farm bill programs. And when I say sufficient, I mean pay landowners enough money. Right now, a lot of these programs require a match. That's got to come out of the landowner's pocket. Well, you don't go to the grocery store and say, hey, I'm going to per se pay 80% of the asking price for that steak, um, right. and I expect you to you know, cover the other 20%, Mr. Rancher. Of course, the rancher is you know, how many steps removed, but you get my point, right? right, yeah. right. But, but here, as the American public, we're going to them and saying, hey, we want to buy 80% of the value of that lesser prairie chicken habitat, but why don't you pinch in the other 20% under your pocket? That's mm. not sufficient. Yeah. These landowners are willing to provide that conservation value. They should be fully compensated for it. Yeah. And so I would advocate to spend that $100 million in a strategic, focused, and sufficient manner using many of these same programs that we already have. But the final thought I'll offer on that is the point we are talking about earlier. It's not you know, using farm bill or government programs to give money to, to ranchers. It's not the government doing the rancher the favor. It's the rancher doing the government and the American people the favor of growing chicken habitat so we so our children's children still have that available and so what we ultimately need to do need to do in my opinion is figure out how to develop these private markets uh, to pay these landowners the actual worth for the values that all of us want and a great example of that is carbon markets right yeah everyone's kind of heard about this thing heart you know carbon sequestration mm-hmm. in a private market for selling carbon right. credits right well, um, we should be able to do the same with, and not that that's really happening yet, but it, I believe it will someday soon. But we need oh, to yeah. do the same with wildlife habitat. We need to sell wildlife credits. And, and that allows these landowners to commercialize the value that they provide, not just for beef, but for wildlife or for carbon or for whatever yeah. else we want. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's an incredible answer, by the way. Um, <laughs> I... Yeah, it's nice to hear. it's nice to hear some outside of the box practical things that could be done. You know, yeah. I think a lot of times people could get hung up, hung up on what's already being done and say, well, we just need to expand that, which is true. But we also need to come up with some other ways to get the money flowing to where it should mm. be going. And That's right. uh, it, those are definitely some creative ways that we could, we could do that. So I, uh, I, we are totally with you on, on, sufficiently funding the landowners that are doing us a favor by putting into conservation. But uh, let's, let's say there's a portion of our audience or someone listening to this that says, well, what does the lesser prairie chicken have to do with me? Why, why should I care about this species? What, what would you say to them? Yeah. So, oh gosh, wonderful questions. You guys is great. So, um, So we were referring earlier uh, in our previous conversation to our good friend Aldo Leopold, a famous uh, conservationist, yes. kind of a leader in conservation thinking. Um, also wrote, a native Iowan, by the way. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> Burlington, right. Burlington, Iowa. 
there's so much tying back. So uh, I think, let's see, I think I can get his quote uh, straight. He says, the, the grouse um, represents only a millionth of the mass or energy of an acre, but take away the grouse and the whole thing is dead. Mm. Right? Wow. And, 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 and that really captures it. I mean, these grouse, they're, they're emblematic, they're iconic. If you have enough contiguous prairie habitat to have healthy prairie grouse populations, then you have healthy prairie ecosystems. And, and you know, the, the number one purpose of the Endangered Species Act is to conserve the ecosystems upon which we and all other species depend. So the yeah, Endangered yeah. Species Act goal, conserve the ecosystems upon which we and all other species depend. How fundamentally important is that, right? Yeah. Now, and so, and then on top of that, and we need to say this, so uh, prairies are the most threatened ecosystem on the continent right yes. now. And yep. it's for all the reasons that we do Iowa exhibit it, right? Yep. I mean, Iowa used to be all native prairie. Now it's 95% yeah. not. 80% right? of Iowa was prairie. We are less than 1% today. Yeah, there you go. And so... And so prairie, that's, that's why prairie ecosystems are the most threatened ecosystem on the continent. So here's another thing. I don't know if your listeners have heard of the 3 billion bird study, but a research paper was recently published assessing the decline in the number of birds in different habitat types throughout North America over the last 50 years. The ecosystem with the greatest decline in the number of birds is prairie ecosystems, where prairie birds declined by 40%. Wow. Yeah, prairie chickens, bobolinks, you know, savanna sparrows, all those things have declined more than any other ecosystem on the continent. Now, the only exactly. ecosystem the, the only ecosystem that did not experience a decline over the last 50 years, can you guys guess? In number in the decline in the number of birds, the only ecosystem that did not decline? Um, my guess is some sort of swampland or desert. Oh, I, <laughs> wetlands. Wetlands, you got it. That's the. In, in fact, there was a slight increase in the number of birds depending on wetlands habitat. Nice done, and man. why is oh, that? Thanks. Because we have laws like the North American Wetlands Conservation mm -hmm. Act, yep. which and, and, and advocacy by terrific groups like Ducks Unlimited and, and landowners who have participated in saying, you know what, this land floods every third year. I can't afford to farm it. Let me do a deal where yes. I get compensated to grow ducks. And you yeah. know what? It works. <laughs> it yeah. works. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. yeah. And, and that's why... Uh, you know, right now, your listeners should know about two pieces of legislation. One that hopefully will be passed by Congress any week now. That's Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which will fund state agencies to conserve at-risk species. And, and this is really important, okay? So you have we have excise taxes on hunting and fishing equipment. So state agencies can work on species like lesser prairie chickens. Up until lesser prairie chickens cannot be hunted anymore, then the states lose the ability to spend a lot of their money on that species because it's not a huntable species. Well, uh, bring Recovering America's Wildlife Act in, or RAWA as it's called, and those states can again get in the game of conserving mm -hmm. at-risk species that hunters are not allowed to conserve anymore because of yeah. those rules, right? And then the next one, which hopefully will be introduced in Congress shortly, is called the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. Yep. And it's a mirror image of the North American Wetlands Conservation Act. Really? And why do we need it? See previous comment about how we've done such a good job conserving waterfowl and we need to start yeah. doing a good job conserving grasslands. That is so many. I did not know that that was up. Yeah, uh, it's, it's been it's been work. There's been a lot of work done on that over the last, what, maybe two years? Yeah. Would you say, Ted? It's, yeah. It's been yeah. Kind of talked about. Well, there's 
there's this, uh, I don't know if it's a quote. I've seen it on Facebook a couple different times from different people. And it, it is a quote. Now, I don't remember who said it. I might need to look that up. But it was, uh, um, humanity gets very humbled when you realize that all of our existence is dependent on six inches of soil <laughs> and the fact that it rains. And <laughs> have you, have you I've seen that? I've seen that lately. I love that. Yeah. yeah. And, and I the, love it. I I love that as well. I I think it's important that we know that the soil isn't like a chance we are lucky to have a thing. It right. is a we have to partner with that soil and keep that soil or you get um I was listening to a podcast by uh Clay Newcomb about soil and he was saying that um there is some argument a large part of the fall of Rome, which is a huge historical event, had to do with the fact that they were terrible farmers and totally destroyed their soil. And uh, I think, you know, if, if I think we could be a little smarter sometimes on how we handle yeah. our soil and having oh, gosh. native habitat would be, you know, more native habitat yeah. would just be incredible for it. Well, once and, again, separated at birth, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> Were you also born in 1997? Are we the same year and everything? Yeah, I never had a conversation before today, but this is you are hitting the nail on the head. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very well said. And, and, and by the way, uh, Kiss the Ground. Uh, I guess yes. documentary. Yep. You guys talked fantastic. about that. Fantastic. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Fantastic documentary. Get that on Netflix. Um, and, and even uh, you can visit the website, and I think you can uh, get a, a, a version that way it's emailed to you. Yeah, called um, Kiss, Kiss the Ground. I want to say that again. So yep, yeah. yep, Kiss the Ground. Excellent film that talks all about what Nick was describing with conserving our soil. And, you know, another thing that uh, somebody may be listening to this, they may be saying, okay, um, I get money for not farming that, that ground. And here out in the west that's that means grazing mostly uh here that means corn and beans and you know recently we've had you know 14 dollar soybeans and and seven dollar corn and someone might be saying well is it gonna you know i can't imagine crp payment covering that but nick can you talk a little bit about the hidden cost uh, of of uh growing an annual crop compared to a perennial crop, so to speak, I guess we could call it that Yes, with uh, CRP. Yeah. We actually have uh, one of our coworkers and good friend, Peyton. Shout out to Peyton. Shout out to Peyton. He's great at what he does. He is coming out with or working on a video to go through just the very basic math of, Hey, we're making a thousand dollars per acre in corn. But how much are we putting into it when fertilizer is three times the price and Roundup is two times the price and diesel is two times the price? You know, all, all these all these inputs and and uh, uh, is it worth it? Right. Especially with, with how much work then you're putting into it. Let's say let's say you net three hundred and fifty dollars with corn uh, per acre or you could make two hundred and seventy five dollars per acre on CRP. OK, you're losing seventy five dollars. Well, you also all those hours you actually don't yeah. have in the field, um, you can add or contribute or build up a society or spend with your family, you know, whatever, whatever is needed there. But the, um, the gross numbers there can be really deceiving. And, yes. and uh, we have found there are some years where CRP is really low. I, I mean, we're about due for a new um, farm bill 
to bump up numbers on CRP acres right about now because from the last one, we're just starting to lag behind uh, rent acres, uh, rent rental prices. And every time we get a new farm bill, it goes up and then CRP goes up and, and, and that's great. Uh, but I think I think the overall yearly math, if you if you take it to the bank, uh, you would be surprised. And I know we actually have a lot of farmers. Very competitive. Yes. A lot of farmers come to us and they say, well, yeah, I, I we had a great year. I sold 750 corn uh, and I almost lost money last year. And that, that's not, you know, those are some extreme cases. You're selling 750 corn and, and losing money. But uh, CRP in terms of native grassland, there is quite a bit of... Uh, uh, supplement um, to go there. And there are other programs besides CRP that you can be looking into. Uh, I, I know a gentleman who actually, he gets seed from us almost every year and none of it's in CRP. He just has uh, hunting grounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just pay per yeah. gun per per day. And, and it's an incredible place. You know, he's, uh, he's, he's raising birds and he's got native birds out there. And it's a, Bensink Farms, actually, what it's called. It's a really cool place. Uh, Jack Bensink is he's an awesome guy, and, and he loves conservation. And just said, "How can I help the land? Help me!" And yeah. uh, has done a great job of it. So, yeah, def- yeah, definitely a way to if you're a landowner listening into this, a way to make a good financial decision, not just a conservation decision, because that's not the only thing that you have to worry about. You got to pay taxes on that ground, and you, you. Um, you know, you got to care for what you own. But if you look at, like Nick so expertly said there, the net cost on both, you'll find that that uh, accepting these conservation funds to farm the best and conserve the rest, or even more if you really want to, um, <laughs> it, it could be a good financial decision there. So, yeah, yeah all, all of this is, is good to hit. I, uh, so I, some of the ranchers I work with, you know, they're, they're ranchers in lesser prairie chicken country, right? They're on unbroken ground or, well, I mean, they, usually they have both, right? Broken and unbroken. They're farmers and ranchers at the same time, mm. uh, which is important, right? Because uh, these individuals are going to make some money farming. They're going to make some money growing cows. And what they are finding is if they take advantage of some of these programs like CRP and others to graze less, it makes them more resilient in the long term. For example, when they experience drought, they don't have to sell all their cows into a bad market. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they can hold on to more and keep them going because they have fewer to start with, right? And so yeah. that attenuates over time and makes them more successful. Not only that, but then their grasslands are healthier and uh, they're le- operating less close to the margin every year trying to grow enough beef to, you know, to, pay, uh, to, to, to sell them for enough to pay for their costs, right? And then last thing on the hunting, I've got a good buddy who's got 700 acres down in uh, south central Texas, west of san antonio and you know he's been trying to grow beef for decades he and his family and they recently started uh, <clears throat> doing a lot of grassland restoration and <clears throat> selling the opportunity to hunt and in just a couple of well-placed weekends they can sell enough white-tailed deer hunts to make almost as much money as they make on cows year round. Wow. Wow. and and, awesome. and so uh, and, and not that anyone should do only hunting or only mm-hmm. conservation or only farming or only ranching right but I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, the smart landowner is going to figure out how to put the pieces of the puzzle together to accomplish all of these goals and then figure out ways to get paid for it. And that, that's the other part. Yeah. You know, you're hitting on another part. And I said I wasn't going to go down this rabbit hole earlier, but uh, uh, the, the small farm side of things and looking back to the, 
the history of farming. Farming was such a creative way of eking out a living, right? And it wasn't just in dollars and cents. You know, you grew largely your own food. You, um, your your work was kind of you know almost hand to mouth, but in a good in a good sense, right? It didn't didn't have to be shipped around on semis all over the country before it made it back to your plate. And uh, people people could get by, and and uh, you know you look at parenting roles and stuff like that. As far as you could have, it didn't have to be a, a situation where both parents had to work full time just to just to be able to pay the bills. You know, it it, it, it there was enough meat on the bone there to have all that balance that so many people wish they could have in their lives, and yeah. a lot of that came from a creative way of of using the land and all those things that Ted and, uh, and even with what Nicholas was saying on, uh, just the, the CRP net payment there and, and what Jack Bensink's done with his land, there's ways to be creative to make your, your land so much more valuable than just what, what's the, uh, you know, carbon copy, uh, or the, you know, the set script for, how to make money on your land. You know, you got to grow this and this and that's it. And you got to sell it at this time. And, and, uh, that's how you can, you can make money. Well, yes, but there's ways to be creative. And I think we can go back to yeah. one of our earliest episodes with Paul Adama and see just how he's done that. You know, he's growing saplings, <laughs> he's raising eggs. He's, he's only got a fifth of an acre. <laughs> right. He makes right. a living off of how much land he has. It's right. incredible. Right. There's, there's so many other ways to, to maximize that. So, I'm glad you mentioned you know, it. And I think about this, you know, from a consumer, I'm not a large landowner. I got 12 acres here. I'm doing my best on in Idaho, but, uh, but you know, the tractor company wants to sell you a newer, bigger, better tractor. And the seed company wants to sell you their fanciest, latest seed mix. And, yeah. you know, uh, the, you know, you want, that was the, the chemical company wants you to buy more roundup. And, and, and so pretty soon you can let yourself be in this mindset of like, if I just spend more, I can mm-hmm. make more. Right. And it, and it, ah, you know, <laughs> and, and those, those chemical companies, the, the equipment companies, they know, they, they understand right. what the market can bear and they're not charging you what it costs them to make it. They're charging you what they know you can pay before you go bankrupt. And, and, and they can uh, seduce yeah. you into believing that if you only had their product, you'd make more money. Yes. It's hard to resist, right? It's hard to resist. I mean, you know, it happens to all of us in any commercial market that we participate in, not just ag. Yeah, yeah. we we were, um, uh, I grew up with Alice Chalmers, always Alice Chalmers. Dad raised me on Alice Chalmers and he was raised on Alice Chalmers. And, and at one point, I think his brother started using John Deere, but dad found out that John Deere was starting to put computers in their tractors at the time and he couldn't work on computers. So we have a lot of thousand-year-old tractors, but <laughs> but we don't have to pay a quarter of a million dollars to bring a tractor in to get fixed by you know a dealer. Yeah. We we can do yeah. the work, or if we need to switch the clutch, whatever we need to do. And now, to be fair, he Dad's real uh, into uh, ingenuitive. I guess oh, yeah. is the yeah, word. Yeah. So He's a good mechanic. I'm not saying sure. that is for everyone, uh, but uh, newer, better, shinier, uh, bigger is not. Uh, is not always the best route to go. It's not without its costs. Yes, yeah. yes, and and I've talked about this a lot. My my wife and I were actually talking about this the other day. What if we went back to smaller farming? What what happens to macro society if we go back to a little simpler farming? 
and uh, and got rid of the big machinery. You got rid of a lot of your costs, but you also don't make as much money. What happens to us? Well, yeah. we kind of boiled it down to less consuming. Yeah. Right. Food costs yeah. a little more. So yeah. we'd have to eat less food. And I don't think that would hurt us too much no, right no, now. No, I think no. we'd be okay yeah. with that. I was reminded be, of that over be, the 4th of July weekend. There'd, there'd be fewer middlemen. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. exactly. And that's what kills the agriculturalist, right, is the middleman. Yes. Yeah. I We... Um, we are, we're farmers. I grew up a farmer and yet the, the most, the least, um, the least productive or the least money-making part of the business is growing and raising. Yeah. That is yeah. the least money-making part of the business. Which that is, is just incredible. I, most consumers would never imagine that. Right. Yeah. They think they plunk that money in the grocery store and 90% of it goes to the grower. Ain't no. the case. And it's just, it's wild. And we want to be clear. We're not against farmers. You Usually farmers are just doing their best. You know, they're, it's all in corn and beans because that's oh, what yeah. they need it to be in order to put food on their table for their families. We totally understand that. It's, we've, we've built ourselves into a system that right. is a little self-sabotaging. So we just need, we need a little bit of, I mean, people that are waking up and saying, hey, we need to change something. And yeah. then people like yourself who are bringing the change. And doing it well and productively. Yeah, yeah, we gotta help. See. We gotta help these people out to get back to a, a situation that makes sense, you know. Yeah. And Ted was talking about that earlier. We gotta institute some, some, you know, for landowners to to focus on putting acres into conservation. Well, it's got to make sense to them financially right. to do so, and we gotta be creative in how we come up with that. And yes, it'd be great if we just raise the price uh, that's allotted for a, an acre of CRP. But it's going to have to be more expansive than just that. So there's going to have right. to be other other ways that we do that, and we got to. It takes a tremendous amount of creativity to do that. So, man, what and, a and great the, conversation! The, the, the landowners that I work with, they want to be diverse. Yes. They don't, unless they're reaching country, they're ranchers. They do not want to have one income commercial income stream and have it be beef. They want to sell clean water and clean air and carbon sequestration because they know these are important values and they know that they can and are providing them. Right. Hmm. So it's like, let's create these markets. Let's or let's find the ways to, to, you know, to compensate because I, landowner X, still want to grow beef. And frankly, I'm still probably farming, too. And I want to have to develop these other income yeah. streams that I know are valuable to all Americans. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So let's make it make sense for them, people. the good news is as as we have shown we just celebrated fourth of july as americans have shown we are creative and resilient and we do not go down without a fight uh and i really i have a lot of optimism about the future of our agriculture and landscape i've got me too absolutely there's so landowners i'm working with are inspiring yeah 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 there's so many good signs out there if you look closely enough for it uh, some some real positive wins to celebrate, and we can't we can't uh, get caught up in just naming the problems to to not focus on the good things. So certainly certainly a lot to be optimistic about, and hopefully that's what you're gaining from tuning in here. Uh, you got three guys who are building their lives around that optimism, <laughs> and uh, who uh, really think that we can write write the ship, and we can uh, you know change the narrative 
going ahead. And you know what? It might be changes that we don't ever get to see, but I care a whole lot about my three little kids that are waiting for me to get home from work today. And I care about hopefully their kids someday. And uh, you know what? There's a good chance that they'll get to really bask in some of the, the great changes that uh, can come to this landscape if we get creative and get busy. And so that's the last part that we want to hit right here, Ted. How can people get involved with NAGP? Well, of course, you can visit our website at grousepartners.org. We have our Facebook page, and I guess we have an Instagram account now. It's a little new I'm, I'm an old Luddite, right? So I don't know. But uh, <laughs> North, North American Grouse Partners, um, uh, we are a small but mighty organization. We are a science-based policy advocacy group. And right now, the biggest place we're trying to move the needle is for less for prairie chickens because it's urgent and it's important. And we've organized this group that has chosen to call themselves the Lesser Prairie Chicken Landman Alliance to help lead the charge and work with government agencies and industry and other to say, look, we you know no more random acts of conservation. Let's do this in a strategic, focused, and sufficient way. And so the other thing I think that your listeners can do is reach out to their elected representatives and urge them to support some of these more creative ways of helping farmers and ranchers diversify their income streams and get paid adequately for all the values they provide. Farm yes. products, ranch products, conservation products. Because they awesome. provide them all. And so your listeners can reach out to their elected representatives and advocate for that. They can also reach out to the federal agencies as well, particularly the farm bill agencies, USDA, uh, NRCS, and FSA, Natural Resources Conservation Service, uh, Farm Services Agency. And then in Lesser Prairie Chicken Country, it's U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. That's about to list it under the Federal Endangered Species Act. Mm. Let them know you care. Let them know you yes. want to help these 95% of the, the private landowners that own 95% of the habitat to be successful and that we need to listen to them and provide them with the kind of support yes. they need to help us Americans. Yep, yep, very well said. And, you know, there was one other thing I forgot to mention earlier. You, you keep keyed it up in my memory here, Ted, when you're talking about the excise tax on hunting and fishing equipment. Believe it or not, such a good thing that has brought hundreds of millions of dollars towards conservation efforts is under attack right now. There is an active piece of legislation that's uh, kind of coming up for vote here soon on doing away with the Dingle Johnson and Pittman Robertson excise taxes and, uh, yeah, that sounds absolutely ridiculous because it is. That's I, as close as I'll be to stating my you. political beliefs. But I can't help but to, to, to swing the bat on that one. Amen to what you said. It, I Never in my 58 years on this planet, in this country, did I dream that su such a successful act of Congress would be under attack. And not only under attack, but how it's under attack and from whom. And so, yes. uh, for yep. example, my own congressman, uh, Russ Fulcher, here in Idaho, uh, is voting, uh, fighting to repeal it because he thinks it's anti-gun. But you know what? The gun range that's three miles down the road from my house is paid for by Pittman-Robertson dollars and is paid to be maintained by the Idaho Department of Fish and Game using those Pittman-Robertson dollars. And if what Cong my congressman is trying to do with this act is successful, it will take away my opportunity to successfully use my and safely use my guns in my community. It's unbelievable to me. Yep. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And lose the ability Please to train up your... other conservationists. 
Yeah, through, uh, through please contact your representatives and advocate to for the safe, responsible uh, opportunities to use our guns uh, and to pay for conservation like we have for seven, five years now. Thank you for bringing that up. Yep, yep. Yeah, those those acts have been around for a long time. I know PR has been around since 37, and I don't think Dingle Johnson has been around quite as long, but close to as long. And, uh, yeah, it's it's absolute ludicrous that we're uh, we're having that conversation. I never thought it would ever that would ever happen. I thought everybody was was pretty happy with with uh, PR and and uh, uh, Dingle Johnson. But, uh, yeah, we it's, it's a reminder that if we're going to if we're going to see the change we want to see for conservation, we got to be on the lookout all the time. Right. We got to we got to be, um, you know, doing the work the boots on the ground work, but we also have to be uh, talking to legislators and they want to know, they do listen to it, to what we have to say. They know their job is to represent us. And so uh, if you want to be represented, you got to make your voice heard yes. and uh, you need to be talked about that. Also, um, I'm not sure when the next step is, maybe you got some information on this, Ted, for uh, the North American Grasslands uh, Conservation Act. I believe I stated that correctly. Um, when is the next, uh, you know, round of voting or yeah so going so it's out not, a committee whatever it's not a real bill yet so if you googled it all you'd find is uh, information from advocacy groups like ours sure. uh, senator wyden who's a democrat from oregon wants to introduce it with a republican co-sponsor he hasn't found one yet um and so he may just choose to introduce it this uh session just to get it out there there's a lot of republicans who are interested in it but uh sure. the silly season you know close to midterm elections and so uh, fewer and fewer people want to kind of stick their neck out like this. And uh, it would be bipartisan, obviously, uh, which is great, uh, but we're not there yet. So, again, I think folks, especially in farm country who want to reach out, especially any Republicans and uh, on ag committees, uh, please reach out and encourage them to consider the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. And, and what that does really quickly here, so you've got farm bill programs that are designed to help producers while helping conservation. Mm -hmm. The North American Wetlands Conservation Act and the Grasslands Act it would do the reverse. It would help conservation while helping producers. So it's just a different level of emphasis and angle. So yeah, yeah. please. Yeah. So some real action points there. And uh, of course, uh, consider joining up. Uh, do you have like a, a membership that people can, uh, can pick up with North American grouse partners? Yeah. So, uh, I think it's $35 individual membership and, uh, and, you know, go ahead and add your voice to grouse conservation. And uh, we ask for, you know, for folks to advocate uh, on behalf of grouse uh, when the time is right, just the way we're, we're talking about right now in your podcast. And so folks will have the opportunity to, to weigh in and help out uh, conserve uh, native prairies and native grouse. Yep. Yep. So def awesome. definitely do that. And as uh, Ted said earlier, science-based. So uh, you know that, that this isn't just uh, the the stuff based on anecdotal evidence or what grandpa told somebody this is this is based on data scientific data that that uh, uh really shows where the change needs to take place and and how we can get there so uh, make sure you consider joining up with them and uh, be sure to look up north american grouse partnership on facebook or their website and uh, we'll include that information as well. We'll tag you guys on Instagram, Ted. So uh, you'll have to you'll have to you'll have to get Instagram on your phone. Okay, now. all you right. Go, go check it out there. Don't but. get them on the trap. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do but it. Social but media, we, rah rah. 
That's yeah. right. That's right. There's good, good and bad that comes. Good and from bad. It. That's right. No, no, it's good. I, I keep yep. up with family through it. It's nice. Yep. Yep. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Ted, for giving us some of your time. Uh, enjoy the beautiful mountain views that you have out there. And uh, if you're ever in our neck of the woods, you'll have to come stop by the Hoxie Prairie here, where conservation happens one yard at a time.